Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. Caroline Stephen, financial journalist. Modeling is an important part to success. And in today's episode, we have both speaker and author Alan Peace and share trader and author Louise Bedford talking about the importance of intense enthusiasm and passion. You see, we all have greatness in us, we all have our brand of genius. But sometimes we ask ourselves, how do we find our passions? What are they? It can look like other people have found theirs, but you're stuck in the daily grind. Being around passionate people rubs off on you. It inspires you. It changes your psyche. You see, top performers in life are ridiculously successful and rich, not because they're chasing a buck, but because of the intense enthusiasm they feel for their craft. This is a message Louise Bedford shares first up in the show in Mind Power. Having known Louise for as long as I have, her intense enthusiasm for life is real and genuine. It's how she mastered the markets. She lit those candlesticks 20 years ago and she hasn't stopped. We also hear Alan Peace in part two of his interview. Alan loves his life so much. He doesn't know what day of the week it is. He lives every day as if it was the last. And after two diagnoses of cancer, it really could be. He talks about how in primary school, a teacher said to him he was going to be a professional smart-ass in life, and that is exactly what he is, but he uses it to benefit other people. Alan talks about how to find your greatness. He lives his passion every day. So does Louise Bedford. So, welcome to today's episode. I hope a bit of the passion and the enthusiasm rubs off. Mick Jagger is on tour again. He is 73 years old and apparently he runs five miles a day. He says if he doesn't run that far per day, he doesn't have the energy to continue on with such impressive performances. Now, reportedly, he is worth $360 million. And he is also the man who is trained as an accountant. And when his band was on tour, they went through all of the expenses. And he said, what is this? What's this expense line? And his business manager said, well, I buy combs for you every time we go on tour. And Mick Jagger said, wipe that out right now. Those combs are an unnecessary expense. The band doesn't need a new comb every time we travel. That is the level of specific focus that this man brings to his life. (laughs) Wondering about comb costs. Now, top performers who are ridiculously successful at what they do are rich not because 
they're chasing a buck. They are rich because of the intense enthusiasm that they have for their craft. Here is a secret that most people never realise. If you're doing something without being under the spell of intense enthusiasm, your chances of achieving success are very limited. It is a decision. It is a conscious choice. You fuel it. You focus on it. You fan its flames. When I encounter traders who lack enthusiasm for trading, I know that their foray into the financial markets will be very short-lived. They might seem puzzled that their mediocre efforts don't give rise to incredible wealth, but you and I know the truth. Intense enthusiasm fires up the subconscious. It generates ideas, it provides solutions from vast depths, and you can create enthusiasm yourself. Everybody has the capacity for intense enthusiasm. Personally, I'm more enthusiastic about trading and what it can mean to your life than ever before. I have seen so many changes in the members of my mentor program's lives that I can't help but feel enthusiastic. I cannot believe what trading has done for them, but also the ripple effect into those lives of the people that my members of the mentor program love. You see, the ones that have achieved greatness, they are the ones that feel at a very deep part of their heart an intense enthusiasm for their craft. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to love, love trading. It can mean that you love, love the results of trading. But whatever you do, focus on the deliberate development of intense enthusiasm in your life. This is a key to success. Use it. Hi, this is Dr. Barry Burns with Top Dog Trading, and I am a big fan and listen to Talking Trading. Every episode that comes out, I've subscribed, I'm on there, I'm listening, and I'm loving it, and you should too. And now author, speaker, body language expert, Alan Pease, shares part two of his journey and how he rebuilt himself bigger and better with intense enthusiasm. So there's a couple of places I want to go here. Firstly, is writing it down. You've mentioned it earlier in the interview. It is so important to handwrite your goal. And I think you've said previously in another interview that that's the difference between millionaires and billionaires. Yeah, that's true. When I started, that uh, it's the only one I ever saw on this on handwriting was back in the late 70s in America. They, they wanted to find out what was some of the essential differences between millionaires and billionaires because everybody's got the same amount of time in their life. And millionaires have the same amount of time as billionaires. Well, what was making the billionaires more successful, richer, more wealthy than the millionaires? And they tried to boil it down to some of the basic things. And the thing that stood out the most between those two is that first, they both knew exactly what they wanted. Millionaires and billionaires were clear on what they wanted in their life. They all had plans of action and they had deadlines. But where the significant difference was between billionaires and millionaires was that the billionaires had it in writing and the majority had it in Handwriting, that handwritten it at first and kept the list, even though it got transferred onto onto technical data or computers. And so handwriting is important because, as I mentioned earlier, if you only use uh, your smartphone or your computer to, to type your goals, you're only using eight connections of the brain. You're using up to 2,000 connections when you do handwriting, which means you're more emotionally involved in the whole process to begin with. After you 
got depression for a little while in your 40s and then you recreated your world. How did that experience change you in your 40s? Did it humble you? How did you feel about your success once you'd recreated it? Well, it's definitely a humbling experience because I, I come from a small country town, Victoria, for lawn, working class family. We never really had much. I lived in housing commission as a young kid. And so by the time I got to be in my late 20s, where I was enormously successful worldwide and, and very wealthy and had just about everything you, you could imagine, I was a huge success uh, in terms of working class people, certainly, which I was. And then I lost it all, of course, and that was what was so embarrassing for me because to get it all like that and lose it is working class. That is as bad as it gets, for a man especially. You know, women tend to cope with these things much better. Barbara dealt, dealt with it fairly well compared to me. I dealt with it very poorly on reflection. Uh, how did it change me? Well, one of the things I did realise, I remember Barbara and I walking hand-in-hand hand along the beach in Sydney, just close to my 45th birthday, and we just worked out how to pay off our $3 million debts and we were paying all our debts off. And we had nothing. All we had was each other. When you, when you get to just each other, that's why separation and divorces are pretty high because you say, is this all I'm going to have? <laughs> we thought, oh, this is a good month. We're happy. This, this is all we got. We're happy with this. And we're walking along and I'm thinking, this is great. We don't have to think about millions of dollars in the bank or millions of dollars in real estate or, or overseas. Sh- we don't have to think because we had none of that. We didn't have anything. And it was like a huge relief. And I realized that tangible things uh, are all a big game. You don't really need that much money in your life. You don't need that many things uh, to live to have a happy life. Uh, you, you need a bare minimum. Everything above a bare minimum is just a game. You're entertaining yourself. And so that, that's that's one of the things I realised. What did change my, my life, of course, was when I got diagnosed with cancer. Because uh, anybody who's been diagnosed with cancer or knows someone who has knows that you're waking up with the Grim Reaper standing over your bed with the big sword. You don't know whether it's going to fall or when it's going to fall. Uh, but chances are it will fall on you. And, and that dramatically changes your life when you get a, a diagnosis of any life-threatening illness because you realise for the first time that you actually could die. And, as, and most of us as humans, we refuse to admit that we might die because it's a coping mechanism. We don't like the idea that we might die, so we just don't think about it. We put it off or pretend it doesn't exist. When you get a life-threatening illness such as cancer, you suddenly realise you, you're going to die. And, and all of a sudden, you attract people all around you with cancer, and they're all dying too. rang me the other day. I've been a cancer counsellor now for 20 years. He rang me and said, he gave me six months to live. I said, what happened? He said, I couldn't pay the bill. He gave me another six months. You know? <laughs> Most cancers, more than 80%, are self-inflicted. We're given to ourselves. Diet, lifestyle, and attitude, negative thinking. And uh, a small percentage of genetic and others you get from various things. I had radiation poisoning when I did seminars up near Chernobyl. I got thyroid cancer in Chernobyl. And, but most cancers, more than 8 out of 10, are self-inflicted. If you can understand and accept that you have done this to yourself by your diet, lifestyle, your negative, crappy thinking and all the things you do, you can use the same process to reverse it. That is, decide what you do want. And one of the things I advise all cancer-diagnosed people, as soon as they get a diagnosis, the first thing they must do, they must decide, I am going to live in a story Full stop. Yeah, but the doctor said six. Okay, get rid of that doctor. Doctor says six months, you get rid of that doctor. Find a doctor who says two years or five years because they'll only treat you according to that. They'll only advise. And if you get six people, Carolyn, telling you you're going to die in six months, you know what happens? You're going to die in six months because the Aborigines have what's called pointing the stick, ceremony where they sit the elders in a circle and an accused person of a major crime sits in the middle and has to suffer the verdict of the elderly. And if they decide the penalty is death, all the old Aborigines do is point the stick or point the bone at this guy. And within 14 days, perfectly healthy people die. 
and they die for no medical reason purely because they sincerely believe they will die. And that's the same process by which you can live. You make a decision that you will live. End of story. Full stop. And one guy said to me, what if you're wrong? I said, well, then I'll be dead. I mean, what a stupid question. Sit around planning it in advance. So uh, I had a life expectancy of three years. I thought I'd go three years max when I got diagnosed with this big one of 47. I'm 66 next birthday now. And uh, I'm in great condition. I'm in fabulous condition. And someone said, yeah, but you can still die. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. But I'm certainly not going to think about it. And if I do die, well, I'll probably die quickly, and that's fine. Why did you write this book? Well, it's one of those things that throughout my life journey, meeting particularly meeting people at seminars and, and being in the seminar business as a speaker for 46 years, uh, I've travelled the world with everybody. And my best friends were Earl Nightingale and Brian Tracy and Norman Vincent Peale and Zig Ziglar and all these guys were great friends of mine. So I was really privileged to be able to travel around with these guys, to be able to pick their brains constantly, which I did. And I guess I drove them nuts. But I, I realised that there wasn't one book or personal thing that had pulled together all the things we know works. Positive thinking, uh, setting goals, time limits, uh, overcoming obstacles, and nobody pulled it together and matched it with science. And our last four books have done this. We've pulled together the differences between men and women, how we're scientifically different in the brain and how it impacts on our lives. And, and our last four books uh, have real-life stories, have humorous events to make people laugh, particularly when you're talking about delicate subjects, and uh, they're based in science, so men will read them as well. 40% of our readers are male-based because we have a lot of science in it. So we put the science in here to show you what part of the brain it is, how it works, and how you can actually control it to get what you want. But it's not a revolutionary big change. It's using things that have always been there that most people kind of know about a lot of it, but no one's had the formula for how do you put it together. And that's why the results that the people who use this get are absolutely devastating, provided they start by thinking about the what not the how. In a previous interview, we talked about, you talked about the importance of following your passion to be really successful in life. Let's talk a little bit about that. Why and how have you done it? Well, you know, the average person's got greatness in it. There's no doubt about it. Everybody has something about them that they can have that's greatness that they can, they can be passionate about. And passion means that, uh, I mean, I don't know whether it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I don't know what day of the week it is. I never do. Every day is great. Uh, yeah, 86% of, of people, 86% of Australians hate what they do for a living. They, they don't like getting out of bed and they don't like going to work. They'd rather be doing something else. They look forward to Fridays and they hate Mondays. I mean, that's a terrible way to live. And the bottom line is to find out where your greatness is is a very simple key. And that is you think in your, in your past, in your background, Carolyn, in your past, for anybody listening to this, what are the is the one thing or the things that you love so much, that turns you on the stimulating side of you so much that you do it for free. What is that one thing? You do it for free. You love it so much. That is where your greatness lies because when you get into that, you're doing it because of the passion, not because of the rewards of money or benefits or anything else. You're doing, if, you're, if what you're doing is based on receiving money, it's short term, you'll be unhappy and you'll be out of it. So the, now the bottom line is whatever job you've got, whoever's listening to this now, whatever job you're working in, if it's not the thing that you want to get up in the morning and go and do, you can't wait to do it and you're sad when it's over, quit. Get out of that thing right now. Stop wasting everybody's time. Because what you're doing is you're wasting your own life doing something you don't want to do. You're not giving your boss the best because you're not putting in the best. So the boss doesn't benefit as well. 
You've got a plan to get out. It doesn't mean you're going tomorrow and quit, but you've got a plan that over the next three, six, 12 months, two years, that you'll get out of that and get into the thing that you really want to do. Now, this is where people get a bit bogged down. They go, for example, oh, yeah, but oh, look, I really love cooking and keeping a clean house. That's really sad, having dinner parties. Well, so did Martha Stewart. Come on, that's what you did. Oh, yeah, look, I like talking to people, having a great time. Oprah Winfrey, Jay Leno, Don Lane, Bert Newton. Carolyn Stevens, love, love to do this, right? I love to talk about stuff. Yeah, I love playing sport, tennis. Yeah, Roger Federer, Tiger Woods. Yeah, okay. Admittedly, these people are superstars who are at the mega end of things. And maybe we can't all be that good. But there are hundreds of thousands of people that you've ever heard of that are in the tennis game, they're in, in uh, radio, they're in television, they're in cooking, they're in any sort of position you can possibly think of. I said the other day, oh, I like beating people up and martial arts. Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali. I mean, come on. <laughs> Did you always want to be a speaker? Well, I always was a speaker. When I think back to school, um, uh, I used to be accused of being the class clown. And when I read, read through my own uh, school reports now, my son found a couple of these, which is a bit disappointing because years it against me. Uh, I did have a tendency to stand up in class and, and, and crack jokes and make the class laugh. And I remember Mr... Mr. Phillips, my maths teacher, one day I cracked some funny and the whole class was falling about. And he said to me, he said, Alan, he said, your career is going to be as a professional smart-ass, which turned out to be absolutely true. And I said to him, do you know what a smart-ass is, Mr. Phillips? He said, what? He said, that's anybody can sit on an ice cream and tell you what flavour it is. That's a smart-ass. <laughs> so I was a professional smart-ass at school, and, and I kind of am a professional smart-ass now, except I, I use it to benefit to make people's lives better. So one of the final questions, I know you've got a lot of kids and I remember talking about them last time. Do they follow their passions? Do you do you steer them towards the directions that make them high on life? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether they do it is another question. We, they have been ingrained and taught this from the time they were kids. And uh, we've got six kids. Let me think. Uh, yeah, well, Cameron does. He's a professional musician. So he's broke. Uh <laughs> all of our kids know what to do to follow their passions and we encourage them and show them at every stage of their life what to do to put them back on track so the answer to that is yes that they follow it some more than others as much as Barbara and I do probably not as much because we're looked upon as fanatics and fanatics in our case just means that we will not be thrown off the track for what we want final words of advice well final words of advice is that what we're talking about here is, is really simple. It's not easy, but it's really simple. Don't think about what, about how you're going to do something. Don't think about how. Think about what you're going to do. This is so important. Once you decide the what, once you decide the sort of car, sort of house you want, uh, you'll start to see it. A fellow the other day said, I want to have a beautiful home. He said, we'll describe it. And he couldn't describe it. So I said, well, you're never going to have one. You're going to live in a flat, mate, unless you can tell me the colour of the wallpaper, the door handle every screw in the place. So he said, how do I do that? I said, well, look through the newspaper till you find something that's on display that suits it. Go and visit that home. Sit in the chairs. Imagine you own it and you live there. He said, when you sit in the right place, you'll know this is the right place. Once it's crystal clear, then the how, how you'll achieve that, will start coming in front of you. You'll be sitting at restaurants, people will be talking about it. You'll see a seminar advertised about it. People will send you emails about it. When I decided to go to Russia... 1979, it was impossible because it was USSR and you couldn't get any to disappear. But I decided, Caroline, to run seminars in USSR. And despite everybody saying, that's a joke, it's impossible, 
James Bond, they steal your kidneys, you will die from, from plutonium, the whole bit. I left it on there for 11 years. But the minute I wrote that on the list, you know what happened? I started seeing TV shows about the USSR. I started identifying Russian accents. I'd never heard one before, but I could start to hear. How could I hear Russian accents? Because my Raz was picking them out of crowds. And one day, Barbara and I in 1991 were sitting in, uh, we were sitting in this, this, this uh, cocktail party and Barbara heard a, a Russian accent about six people, above hundreds of people, she heard a Russian accent. So we go through the crowd and we find Alexandri. And he's out here saying that he thinks that the USSR is going to finish. He's looking for new opportunities to bring to Russia. And we've been practicing our Russian seminar in our head for years and years. And we did a deal right on the spot with this fellow. We toured Russia for three months. We met Vladimir Putin. We did the first seminars at the, at the Kremlin on how to go on television and be credible for the new Russian politicians. And for 25 years now, it's been our biggest market. If I had a list of the people who says it's impossible, you can't do it, how can you do it? We never would have been going there regularly, which we do now. It never would have been our biggest market. And only happened because we were at a function, and because Raz was looking for everything Russian, it heard a Russian accent three or four doors away. If we hadn't been on the list, we would not have heard that accent. So don't decide how. Decide what. Decide that's what you're going to do. End a story, despite what anybody says, thinks, or does, and the how will appear and the Raz doesn't fail, Karen. It doesn't miss. Was it in your Raz that Vladimir Putin would make you a cup of tea? Well, interesting about that, because we decided that we'd do a seminar in Russia, and we had to have at least one famous person. And uh, the famous person had to be somebody that we could be attached with to give us a, a launch into Russia. And at the time, the most famous person in Russia who had just been elected was Boris Yeltsin. And so we made three appointments to see Boris Yeltsin to show him how we could put on a seminar to teach all these politicians how to go on TV and CNN and look credible. Uh, but he never turned up, and another time he was drunk, and they, they said, forget it, he still had to deal with. But one of the guys uh, in our group, and this is what happens. When you talk about these things, they have clear goals. Everybody, strangers, come and help you. This guy says, look, there's a friend of mine, his cousin uh, is the new mayor of St. Petersburg, where the Kremlin is. And his name was Anatoly Sobchak. He's seen as a bit of a revolutionary, and he could be a good guy who'd be interested in this. So we put it to him, and he thought, what a great idea, training the politicians how to be media-friendly. And so we arrive in, at St. Petersburg, at the Kremlin. We meet Anatoly Sobchak. It's all through translators. There's no English spoken. And he says, uh, he introduces to his deputy mayor. He says, my deputy mayor, Vladimir, will be hosting the seminar because Vladimir first job was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. And so he's, here's Vladimir Putin. We're at the Kremlin with Vladimir Putin, who was at KGB, and surrounded by all these KGB guys. And here we are running this seminar, which came purely from writing on the list in 1978. People say, that was such luck. No, no luck. Now, if it hadn't been Anatoly Sobchak, it would have been somebody else. We would have bumped into somebody else would have told us about somebody they knew who knew someone who knew someone who could get us in there. The point is we decided what, and we decided we were not going to pull back. And when you do that, the answers appear, and strangers volunteer to help you. Where can people get copies of the book? Our copies of the book will be available, uh, so far it's gone into 26 languages, and will be out available first in Australia in uh, end of October, or on our website, which is peas.tv, www.peas.tv. Uh, you can get a, a copy direct off that, and uh, if you ask to get it signed too, Barb and I will sign a lot of the early ones too, depending on you know, and how big, how big it goes. It's hard to know how big books will go these days, but uh, on our website and any bookshop and by March in any language. Alan Peace, congratulations on your new book.
Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks for spending the time, Carol. Stay tuned next week for the highlights of 2016 and all our special guests and their pearls of wisdom. I'm Caroline Stephen. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to TalkingTrading.com.au with Caroline Stephen. Make sure you are subscribed to this website to receive the very latest market views, commentary and expert opinion. Tune in next week as we've got a bumper show planned. Bye for now. The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regard to your own situation.